it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. And that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer and the brewing industry and have a conversation with the people who make the industry what it is and see what we can learn from them. I'm Bruce News Editor Matt Kirkegaard and this week we meet Marie-Claire Jarrett, brewing shift lead at Brick Lane Brewing Company. Marie-Claire, better known as MC, has had a very interesting pathway into the brewing industry. With a background in physics and mathematics, MC was working towards a PhD in experimental quantum physics when she discovered the craft brewing industry in Sydney's inner west. While continuing her studies, but with her passion fired for beer, MC wrote as a blogger on her own blog and beer writer and was awarded the Beer Media Award at the Australian International Beer Awards in 2020. For that varied background, you'll hear MC's path forked many times and could have gone in a number of directions, but she has ended up working as a brewer, currently at Brick Lane Brewing, a role that has seen her spend quite a bit of time on stage at award ceremonies of late. Her path to brewing has given her a unique insight into beer, brewing and the brewing industry, and this is a great chat with one of the emerging leaders of the next generation of Australian craft brewers. MC Jarrett, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. I knew that we'd had you on the podcast before, and I'd assume that it was a Beer is a Conversation, but it was actually as a co-host to Brews News Week way back in May 2018. So we are well and truly overdue a catch-up, even if we didn't have a, uh, you know, a, a reason to do that. Absolutely. That's a long time ago. Yeah, that was when I was still baby back in the beer industry. (laughs) Well, and you were writing under the um, blog uh, New South Ales um, and as well as writing for the Crafty Pint um, and you'd finished, you, you were halfway through your PhD in astrophysics. Yeah, in, in quantum physics, actually. To quantum be precise, physics, sorry. But, but uh, that's, the rest of it's correct. Very good memory. <laughs> now, I don't think even back then, we'll, we'll, we'll go back and talk about some of this, but I don't think even back then you were contemplating a career as a brewer. You just had a passion for the product. That's completely right. Yeah. I mean, I had at that point, I would have spent about. Uh, I mean, I spent nine years at, at University of Sydney in total, so I would have spent, you know, that would have been my sixth or seventh year living living in and around Newtown and in the inner west of Sydney. And, I mean, as we know it now, it's absolutely the, the craft beer capital of, of Sydney with all those breweries around, and it was definitely growing at the time, and that was just feeding my feeding my passion and feeding my interest. But I don't think I ever thought at the time that I was ever going to make beer my, my full-time career, not at that point. <laughs> Uh, You're going straight out of the box. You're going to uh, spark some uh, emails from the Sunshine Coast, which has officially claimed the cap. cap Well, they have claimed the capital of the craft. That's all right. I I said the capital of Sydney. I didn't dare say capital of Australia (laughs) because I'm sure there'd be plenty others that wanted that claim. (laughs) At least we've got enough places in Australia that are vying for the title. Uh, That's true. We're very spoiled, aren't we? So let's step right back. Quantum physics... um, you know, it, it, it's an, it's not something that everyone aspires to out of school. Um, 
tell us a about a young MC, Jarrett, and you know what led you into studying uh, science first of all, and then was it always going to be quantum physics, or what was what was your interest back then? I mean, I've always been interested in, in science and maths. So my dad is a mathematician. He worked at a bank for a long time. So science and maths is always something. I mean, he never uh, pushed us to do us do it as kids, but it's just something we kind of naturally fell into, my, me and my sister, who's an engineer. So uh, similar STEM backgrounds. But it was just the subject that I always liked in, in high school and the one that I was always kind of good at um, it was always kind of chemistry and physics all the way back in high school. Never, never was good at biology or geology or anything like that. It was always more the, I don't know, I think they, they're called the pure sciences, I guess, but that's an arguable term. Um, <laughs> so then when it, when it got to uni, it was just something I knew that I, that I figured I wanted to study. It was Bachelor of Science at all these different unis and just decided on UCID in the end just because my friends were going there. Why else would you choose a uni, you know, based <laughs> otherwise based on where all your mates are going? But science was always just a natural choice, the thing I was good at and liked. And it kind of just was that same pathway all the way until PhD, really. I, I tried all the sciences. I tried biology. That was the first one that I dropped after first year. Uh, then after second year, I dropped chemistry. And all that was left by the time I got to the end of my bachelor's was physics and math. So that's what I ended up majoring in. Uh, and then I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Um, for a living and I think I only had spent four years at uni and I was 21 still uh, when I graduated my bachelor's and I had no idea what I wanted to do and I just thought why don't I just keep going I've always liked science I'll just keep along this path and PhD sounds like a good idea at the time so why don't I just give it a go and see where that leads and led completely not to doing a PhD <laughs> Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't ever a, a choice to, to do it, I guess. It was, uh, I had a supervisor approach me and say, you know, I've, I've seen you all the way through physics through these past four years. Would you like to think about joining my lab for the summer? So I spent a summer in, in the lab at CSIRO in West Linfield. And then after that, he said, look, if you want to stay on and do a PhD, you can. And I thought, well, I don't know what else I want to do with my life. So sounds good and I'll give it a go. And it was really a blessing in disguise because in the end it gave me the time and the space that I needed to, to figure out what I did want to do with my life. I'm the complete opposite. I, maths and science uh, was didn't touch my world at all. As, as much as I was interested in it, I love now reading books about it, but it was never something that I could apply myself to um, at school. So it was never going to happen in university. But the thought of embarking on a seven or eight year academic course with all of the you know discipline and challenge that comes with that while I'm marking time to decide what I want to do <laughs> just sounds it's a complete anathema to me I mean if I think I had known that it was going to be nine years when I started I probably would have uh, been less enthusiastic but I just kind of rolled with it and went with it at the time and it just ended up being being that long I mean, it, it was at the end, In by the time, you know, when I was talking to you for, for the first time I would have been on the podcast, that would have been the time that I was probably starting to think that that's where I wanted my career to go. And then I did find the last year to be a little difficult in terms of the PhD. It had been uh, quite a long time that I'd been at uni and now I had decided what I wanted to do. I was quite itching to get started, but I knew I had to finish it. Um, Unfortunately, you can't just leave halfway through. You gotta, you gotta see it through to the end. Uh, so I did, and then as soon as I did, I was pretty much working at a brewery the next day. 
But again, you know, look, people take gap years when they're trying to find themselves or try and find the inspiration for what they want to do. It, it just seems like, you know, what, what was there ever any, um, you know, faint expectation that the degree or the science study would lead to a science-based career? And we can talk later about whether or not brewing is science-related. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, I definitely knew that I wanted to do some kind of further study, some kind of graduate study, a, a master's at least. Uh, so, so I guess it wasn't like totally out of the blue that I decided to do graduate study. It was something that I had planned on doing already. I think that the, there are there are a lot of jobs you can do with a bachelor's degree, but I did want to kind of be certain that I was going to be good in the job market, and I knew that a, a master's or a PhD would, would do that for me. So it was something that was always in the back of my mind that I wanted to do. So you, you were living in Sydney's inner west, um, as you said, which, you know, was, you know, if, if you've been, if you were studying for eight or nine years, you would have been seeing the, you know, nascent um, and the maturing brewing industries uh, there. And yes. what was it about what you saw that you found inspiring? That's a really good question. I think what I liked, uh, it was a kind of a combination of things. I would say, I'd, I'd say there are probably three things that I really liked about it. One was kind of how laid back everyone was. So I'm, uh, I'm from the North Shore of Sydney and I went to a private school and that kind of uh, person, I think the best compliment I've ever gotten in my life is that I don't seem like I'm a private school kid. So I, I really like that. It wasn't the kind of, it was a great upbringing, but nothing that I really resonated with. And I feel like I really found my people in the craft brewing world, people that were just laid back, took it easy, you know, a great community, something that I think I really thrived being, a, being adjacent to and now a part of. Um, the second one I thought was that it was a really nice, I guess we will talk about it a little later, a nice blend of art and science. I did see the, the working with your hands and the technical skills that you needed, but I also appreciated the creativity uh, that was going on. And then I guess the third one would be that it was, yeah, that, that sense of community. I think um, being part of it at that time where it was growing, I felt, I felt very embraced by people. I, I've never felt like I was an outsider. I felt welcomed into that industry from day one. I remember the first brewery, brewery I ever went to and the first brewery tour I went on was at Young Henry's. And I was the only person there on the tour, but they just were so so friendly to me and really wanted to show me everything and get me involved. And they could, I think they could tell I was interested and they were interested back. They liked that someone really cared and wanted to ask a bunch of questions. So I guess all of that together was just, yeah, a really good blend of things that I thought, wow, this is really cool and probably the industry for me. It, it, it's interesting that you describe that because, you know, more recently we've seen the, you know, flowering of the craft distilling um, industry with, you know, a lot of city-based spirits. And, you know, wineries, it's very hard for them to set up in a city because of where the grapes are grown, but um, which kind of precludes them. But was it the liquid that is beer itself or was it the community and the, and, and, and the philosophy and approach and all of those things that, you know, a, a young MC now may have found herself being drawn to the world of craft spirits, for example? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. I've actually never really thought about that. I mean, at the time, I wouldn't say I knew enough about beer and the different styles of beer going around that I necessarily 
uh, I guess, would have chosen it based on the liquid alone. I mean, it was never that I was a big beer drinker or wine drinker or spirits drinker. I mean, I was a uni student. I drank anything as long as it was cheap, you know. <laughs> and my parents are the same. I mean, they, they, they drink everything. They drink wine. They drink spirits. They drink beer. It's not like we were a, a family or I was ever brought up in a way that I kind of had a preference for one particular type of alcohol. So, yeah, it's a good question. I, I guess it, it, it possibly it could have been the case that if I had found that same same kind of feeling in, in, in a different kind of alcohol industry that I would have gone down that route instead. Yeah. And, and, and I ask that because, again, beer is grappling very much. Um, you know, I was listening back to uh, an earlier interview you did on the Sessionable podcast um, around mm. about the same time. That would have been 2018 as well. Um, and talking about how mature beer had been and, you know, we were having beer and food matching. And, you know, that was one of the things that uh, you know, I loved, um, that, that I loved promoting in, in the early 2000s when I first got involved and to hear it talked about. Um, but it's almost as if we pass that and it's, you know, novelty and, um, you know, uh, you know, how funny can we make a beer or how you know newsworthy can we make a beer much more than how elevated or you know sophisticated can we make beer while still keeping its essential um you know every person's drink um seems to have passed mm. us by do you, do you agree with that or what what's your observation yeah, I think it's a it's a hard battle, I guess, because as as I said, on the one hand, the thing that did drew, draw me to the industry is how how kind of easygoing it was. Like it's, I think it's never been an industry that really, uh, you know, aside from times where it is quite necessary, um, it doesn't take itself too seriously. And I think that is appealing to a lot of people. It's 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 a low you know low barrier for entry. Everyone has a beer at the pub. You know, it's not like you need to go know seven different types of names for grapes in French. You know, which I'm definitely not a wine person. I I've, I've picked my specialty. Uh, I have no idea about wine, and I'm happy to admit <laughs> it. So in, in a way, I think that's good. It it makes it very accessible and very um very appealing. But in a way, it is a shame that uh, it's kind of doesn't have the same status as wine or spirits can have because there is such a variety of styles and and it is I mean it's it's a craft just like every other kind of alcohol that's made and I don't see why we can't be matching it with food in the same way we do it uh, with with other alcohols and yeah I think it, it is just a versatile drink I think you, you we should be able to have it as easy and as accessible as we like but it's also nice to make it a bit fancy sometimes and then it's kind of suitable for everybody well that's yeah i mean i, I used to say um we don't take out we, we take beer seriously but we don't take ourselves seriously because i i, I think beer should be taken seriously you know, as, as a liquid whilst not taking any way of its you know as i say every person you know it, it was a great egalitarian beverage it was one that everyone could get but you know it's a serious business as we're finding now um yes we're with downturns and uh but i, I just want to pick up on what you said about seven grape varieties you you say that but then when you think about it beer has become even more complicated than that you know if if, if you ordered a riesling you had to know a little bit about what a riesling grape was but these days you know if you order a craft beer you, you have to know 15 hop varieties and the beer style to get some idea of how that flavour of the ingredient has translated to a style, um, you know, what, what to expect from the style. 
I guess I guess that's true in a way, but but I still have friends. Uh, you know, I've been I've been in the industry for for a couple of years now, and they they know what a what a beer nerd I am, and yet they <laughs> they they still haven't really you know wanted to. Some of them absolutely have learned a lot, but some of them are just happy. You know, they they go look. I know I like pale ales, and that's what I'm going to order. I'm going to go to the bar, and I'm just going to ask for a pale ale. And in that way, it's it's kind of nice that they that they just know something simple. Like they they have it in their mind what they like. They they kind of. They 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 don't know it, but they do know the hallmarks of that style and the things that they like in that style. But then you can make it as complicated as you like. If you put you know nectar on or whatever hops on the sabro on a tap deckle, and someone reads that and goes, "Oh, I know, I really like that," then they can specifically go and choose that out. So I think that it's kind of powerful in how how simple and as how complicated it can be. You can you can be as discerning as you want to be. Phil Cook, who I. I th- We'll probably hear me reference him again um, saying this. He describes beer as being fractally interesting. The more you drill down, the more you can see recurring patterns of complexity. Yeah. I like that, yeah. But but even that is, is interesting because I've just done my uh, annual 10-day uh, refresher course in beer serving at the uh, Royal Queensland Show uh, where it's just pouring beer after beer after beer to – a very broad cross section of community. Um, you know, people who aren't beer drinkers, they just happen to be in the food pavilion and going, "Look, I'll have a beer." And the number of them who wander up and say, "Oh, look, I'll I, I'll have a beer," and you say, "Well, what do you normally drink?" And they say, "Pale ale." And you know that if I gave them a Moffat Beach American Pale Ale, that's not the thing that they're asking for because to them, a Pale Ale is James Squire, um, you know, 150 lashes or something. Um, that's true. They're, 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 you know, it, it, it's it's fascinating um, how, again, how complicated but how simple beer can be. You know, people. I think people want it to be simple on some level. Yeah, that's very true. And then I would then I would hope that at least uh, people are kind of learning. You know, the, the difference between different kinds of pale ales. In that case, you know, an XPA or a hazy pale or an American pale or Pacific ale, Australian style, something like that. And then then they kind of slowly hopefully learn how to discern exactly what it is that they like in that particular style so going back to the you know you you were still doing your phd but you'd started to get the awakenings of a career path in in beer some you you, you could sort of see yourself getting into beer somewhere was it always going to be brewing because you did start expressing you know your interest through writing yeah, that's true. Um, I think I, I kind of there was a point where I was thinking about doing either or. So there definitely was a point where I thought either I'll be uh, doing a full time writing for Crafty and and stay in Sydney and do that. Uh, but a similar time, I had uh, actually the thing that really kickstarted my career was that I saw the CUB grad program, and that was probably uh, yeah probably around where I was, when I was speaking with you in the second half of of 2018. Uh, is when I saw their grad program and when I started the application process for that. And then I thought uh, that would kind of be, you know, if, if I didn't get that, I would do the Crafty Pint writing. And, and you know, James from Crafty Pint knew all that. Um, but if I ended up getting the grad role, which I did in the end, then that was a thing that I thought, okay, you know, now, now I'm really making a commitment. It was a move down to Melbourne for that. And then I thought, you know, if, if that's where I'm going to, if I say yes to this job, then that's where I'm going to stick with. I'm going to stick with being in the in the hands-on kind of factory side of the industry. And I'm I'm glad I did make that choice because 
hindsight is twenty twenty, and I'm looking back, the thing that I did always enjoy the most out of my PhD and the kind of person that I always have been is a is a hands-on person. I love I love taking stuff apart. I love getting my hands dirty. And I'm I'm glad that I went down the route of actually doing the hands-on thing rather than than the writing thing. But as I said, I still love the creative side of things, so I do dabble in the writing every now and again. Um, kind of still something nice to to keep going. Well, we'll, we'll talk about that um, again when we talk about art or science. But you know, I, I, I'm still astounded. At, you know, somebody who's been very hard on himself for never having a career um, path in mind, and I've just ended up falling in uh, you know uh, falling up <laughs> I, I guess as opposed to falling down but writing and brewing are, you know e- even if in in the confines of the beer industry are two vastly different options that you are entertaining at the same time yeah that's very true and I think uh, one of the other jobs I applied to was to be a journalist for the ABC at some point which I got very quickly rejected for <laughs> so that was interesting so it was always going to go be beer in some capacity I suppose but um yeah I don't know I guess I guess the I think maybe what it was is that writing I was comfortable with and I knew that I could do it uh working in a brewery I think would have been more of a, a leap into something that was a bit more uh, I guess I didn't I didn't have a basis for and I wasn't sure if I could do it and I figured that the whole the whole thing about moving to Melbourne to do it really made me commit to it I commit to it I think in a way that I wouldn't have done if it was a, a job in my, in my hometown then I don't think I would have gone into it as wholeheartedly maybe as as I did. It's interesting. It, it it upsets me a little bit to hear you say that writing and science are just as easy because I'm definitely uh, find writing hard and science impossible. So, uh... <laughs> oh, I mean, by no means was writing ever easy, but I mean, I guess it was just something that I was I was used to. I knew I could do it. I guess, whereas I had no idea if I could work in a brewery and get yeast and beer and lift heavy things. But turns out I could. But I wasn't sure about that at the time. Well, you've won more awards for writing uh, about beer than I have, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for now, for now. <laughs> so what was it? You you joined the um, Asahi or the CUB graduate program. Was that to go into brewing? Like, could you specify what path you wanted to follow or is it a very broad um, program where you just work across a variety of areas? Uh, so it is a specific program. So it's it, at the time it was uh, CUB and they were owned by AB InBev at the time. Right. And they had a, a graduate program that they had everywhere in the world uh, called SMT, which stands for Supply Management Trainee. And so you had uh, options of three sites. So that was either um, Yatla up in Queensland, Abbotsford in Melbourne, or uh, the Cascade Brewery down in Hobart. And then you're either going to be put into brewing or packaging. So when I first got the job offer, I was told that I was going to be in brewing and I was obviously super excited about that. And then when I actually got down to Melbourne, they, they changed it on me and they said, oh, actually, we're going to put you in packaging for a year. And I was initially a little disappointed because, you know, everyone that joins a brewery wants to be a brewer or I would say most people would. Sorry, sorry to the packages out there. I'm sure there are many passionate packaging people that are very happy being in packaging, but I was a lot of people have started of on the packaging line and worked their way <laughs> they, up. It's almost, you know, it, it, it's it's almost a career path these days. That's it. But that's the whole thing. It's working your way up, right? It's 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 kind of this opinion that we have that packaging is kind of 
the starting point and brewing is where really everyone wants to be. So I was initially disappointed because of that because I thought, well, now I'm going to be in packaging and I'm going to have to work my way up. But in the end, I actually am really grateful that that happened because I had a wonderful boss at the time uh, who's now the site manager at the Laverton facility and I learned so much from him and it ended up being the time of COVID that I moved. I moved in the beginning of 2020 and I had a great experience there where I learned, I think, so much um, in the end that I was kind of grateful to to have done packaging, to have the people that I had and, and also to have the experience and get it out of the way because it's not something I think I would go back to and not something I ever would have chosen for myself, but I'm grateful that it happened out that way because now I have the experience that I probably would have never, never chosen for myself. Um, that said, though, uh, there was no way for me to get into brewing while I was at Asahi. I, I did try and I tried to get into a, a pathway that would lead me into it. And because I couldn't get out in the end um, and after the, the wonderful boss had left and moved on to another role, that's when I decided that I was going to have to leave and part ways with CUB if I wasn't able to get into the, the part of the brewery that I really wanted to be in. So, so what did you do? So I was looking around for a few jobs. I applied for a couple of brewery jobs, uh, large and small breweries. Uh, I, I was able to be a bit discerning at the time because I really wanted to work for one that I felt kind of was so somewhere that I was passionate about working for. And in the end, that ended up being Two Birds, uh, which very sad now, now no longer is is a brand, but uh, was a, a brand that I had always really looked up to and respected. Jane and Danny, I had met a couple of times before when they'd come down to Sydney events or I'd been to Melbourne, and I knew that they were going to be the kind of brand that I would want to be proud to represent and that I'd want to work for and that I would learn a lot from the people there. And at the time, they did have the backing of, of Fermentum, not not Line when I joined, but of Fermentum. And mm -hmm. so I knew that that was going to be a good um, a good company for me to be able to start a career path in. And how, how did you go? Did was it purely hands on, or did you do additional training as well, or additional study? Uh, yeah, the good question. I completely forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, so uh, just before I left CUB, I did my diploma in brewing. Uh, so they were very generously uh, funded that for me. Um, we we were meant to do one of the modules in uh, 2020 and the second one in 2021. So usually uh, it's a three-module course, usually takes three years, and most of the grads do it in two. But because I really wanted that brewing job, I did all three modules in the one year, um, one, one after the other, three days in a row in 2021. But People said, how did, how did you do that? It's, how did you do it in, in three modules in one year? And kind of the easy answer is it was lockdown. What else was I going to do? <laughs> I just sat, sat in my room and studied for most of the time. Every time I went on my little 5K walk, I did flashcards. I, just, I, I lived and breathed that diploma for about three months. I, I definitely couldn't do it again now that we're all allowed outside again, but it was the perfect time to be able to do something like that. And how was this? How was brewing study, you know, again, I'm just not wired for, as I said, for, for science study. But a fundamental principles of brewing, with the you know the the the, the biology and the science um, and the chemistry, um, you know, are, are the principles as understandable as they are for uh, quantum physics, or you know, <laughs> I, I, I can the, the, the specifics aren't, but are the principles? Is that the way you're wired to just pick that up? I, I think so. Like I don't, I'd never found anything too too difficult in terms of the science part of it. So yeah, there's there's chemistry in there, there's biology, there's there's maths and equations that you had to learn, and on all of that I was fairly familiar with. So I 
I picked that up quite easy. Ironically enough, the bit that I found the hardest was the actual um, the actual brewing side of things because at the time I had only worked in in packaging and a little bit as as a casual seller hand um, back at Batch in Sydney. So I really had no no very good knowledge about pretty much like what the inside of a lauder ton looked like. So in a way, I kind of felt like a bit of a phony getting a diploma in brewing. Uh, without actually ever having run a brew house ever. Like, I don't think I'd ever seen, never never had run a whole brew day process, you know, other than a, a Cooper's kit in a, in a homebrew at home. But that, I'm not sure that really counts. Um, so, so funnily enough, I think so many people would probably be the opposite, where they've, they've done the brewing and they know all the processes, and then they need to learn the, the science part. Where I was the complete opposite way around. The science came very easily to me. And I, I tried as much as I could to to go visit breweries and out, you know, out of I was still able to go to work. Thankfully, we were essential workers, so I was able to kind of pop in, pop my head into the brewery side at CUB every now and again. Yeah, pop my pop my head into the side of the brewery every now and again at CUB and kind of see those things for myself. And that's how I gained that more hands-on knowledge that that brewers would probably have had far earlier than I would have had. But again, and, and that brings us to the the thing that we've been alluding to and talking about the art versus the science, because you know craft beer was always about the romance, and it was all about the creation rather than the the, the business, and it was almost a reaction against the highly industrialized, very methodical brewing that had gone before, to the point that there was almost an element of you know eschewing any form of science, and yet. At its heart, it is a you know it, it, it it's a very precise um, you know something that you need to replicate. Um, you know where do you come down on brewing as art or science? Oh, it's going to be a real you know I'm going to really do give the politician's answer, and I'm going to say that I think it's a, <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely a blend of both. I think you could be the world's best scientist, and you'd be a terrible brewer. And you could be the best recipe developer, but if you don't have the understanding of what's what's going on, you know, biologically or chemically, then you're not going to make good beer. I think you have to have an understanding of, of both. You need to be able to, to know what's going on and be able to control control your chemistry and your process. But you also need to have that creative flair and, and be able to, in the end, and this, this is something that I really like about where I work now is we run we run numbers on any everything we have we know the color of the beer we know the IBU you know we say all oh, the the beer's out of spec can we release the beer still and and someone says yeah but well does it taste good and that's it in the end I mean that's 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 the quality of the product is do, does it taste good do people want to drink it so you you can make an excellent flawless product but if it doesn't taste good in the end and no one wants to drink it then you're not going to sell it and I think that's why it's still super important to to you know, reflect back that it is it is the product in the end, and how it how it is going to taste, and how the recipe is developed, and whether you need a bit more of that or a bit less of that, or let's try this next time. Uh, you still need that bit of creativity to be able to make a, a beer that's going to sell. And again, that brings in the other element that craft beer was supposedly all against, which is marketing, because you can have the best beer in the world that people actually, if they tried it, did want to drink. But it's the marketing that makes them want to try it quite often. Yeah, that's very true, uh, and and it is a sh- it is a shame I think, um, and and especially now. I mean, you you would have much more insightful things to say about this than I would. But I think the fact that the market is so dominated by so many different brands, um, it is becoming harder and harder to to keep up. There there was a time uh, in Sydney 
when I was writing that I would be trying the new releases from from a brewery every week. I, you know, I'd spend my week, and it sounds like I like if I say that now, you probably think, "Wow, she's probably drinking twelve beers in a night." But at the no. time, it wasn't all that many breweries, you know, so it was quite doable to be able to try all the all that week's new releases in a week. Now it's you you'd be really struggling to to try that, and and so it was kind of easier at the time to know what was good and what wasn't. And now there's just so much that it really is now just coming down to the marketing and and there's so many things behind it, you know, the the top 100, things like that, Instagram, social media. Will's written great articles for Crafty about TikTok and social media and how that all influences beer marketing and can design awards we have now and marketing awards. So it's it's kind of has strayed a little bit from the quality of the product and and more to how well it can sell. And, And I do find that a little bit of a shame because... In the end, it's it's a food product, and it should be down to what what tastes best. But that is but how it is. Isn't that down to the nub of the problem that the industry needs to confront? Is you know when everybody knows everything, then they can make a different set of decisions than you know when you have to. You know, and it, it's an instinct of survival. You know, where we have to categorize things based on past experience. Um, you know, which is how we survived. You know, if you hear Russell in the bushes is always the thing that they say, you know, is that a tiger or is it, you know, something that I want to eat? Um, and as the industry's grown bigger, we need to look at things other than our personal knowledge with a brewery as to whether we decide it's beer. Um, and the, the, the flip side of that is when consumers get exhausted by choice, they default to the thing that they know um, mm. because it's safe. And, you know, it's a huge challenge that the industry has to confront. It is. And it is, it is, I hear what you're saying with your, with your first point um, that it's kind of hard for an individual to be able to to decide. And, you know, you, you do, you do lean in your friends and you say, you know, what have you had? That's good. What did you get at the bar? How's that beer? But, it is a it is something that's also quite subjective and you know what what your favorite beer is going to be is probably going to be very different to what my favorite beer is we have totally different taste buds and styles that we like so in a in a way i guess it is still a decision that someone has to make and then then it comes your second point that it becomes quite overwhelming to make that choice and and you do you do either have to rely on what you know or you rely on on the pretty colors and what the marketing department is saying that you should you should be trying next yeah which again it comes back to you know the the purity of if if you get into something for the art and creativity of it um you know if as a brewer you want to create weird and wonderful things if you're if you're making hi-fi lager um you know a million liters uh a, a year and it has to be exactly the same it's is, is is that art, or you know, or, or, or is yeah. that manufacturing? That's one of the, you know, the, the challenges that the industry has had to 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 come to appreciate. Yeah, absolutely right. And I think uh, one of one of the things that um, I don't work there anymore, so I'm, so I'm sure I can say this. But one of the things I learned very quickly uh, when I when I started at CUB was someone said, "This isn't a beer company; it's a marketing company that just so happens to sell beer." And that's it. It's it is it is the same way. You and especially at that company, it's it's just it's a lot of mass manufacturing. Um, but you you got to be creative in in other ways. So I guess the way the way that I find that I get to be creative at work is well, we have a pilot system for one. 
So I think that's really nice that we can we can show our creativity as brewers. But also um, a lot of the way that things work and the, and the problem solving part of things or, you know, the on the fly thinking and and running several processes at once also takes a kind of a different kind of, of creativity. You know, I think no one is ingenious as a brewer when something goes wrong and something breaks. They're, they're able to, so, I mean, and it's true, it's not just the brewery I'm at now, it's every brewery I've worked at and, and most stories I've heard is that people come up with some amazing solutions on how to fix stuff on oftentimes a shoestring budget. And I think the ingenuity and creativity of breweries, brewers that extends outside of the liquid itself is actually quite amazing. <laughs> so it, it, it sounds like, you know, you're more passionate or as passionate about the industry as ever before, despite you know, day in, day out, um, you know, creating product of a certain quality. And, you know, congratulations, I should say as well, on Brick Lane's phenomenal uh, year so far, both at the Indies and uh, then also prior to that at the AIBAs. Just yes, the, 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 the sheer quality of the beer across the entire, um, you know, platform of beers, including some that won awards that uh, weren't even under the Brick Lane name. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's that's the good thing about it is um yeah, I think it, it it does seem it does seem like, you know, a bit of mass manufacturing to say that we are making the same thing over and over again. But in the end we we do taste it and we say, you know, is this still what we want? Is it still tasting good? What what modifications can we make maybe to make it better? And it's it's just tweaks here and there. It's not like it's coming up with a whole recipe. But it is still having to think and, and go, you know, kind of subjectively, um, how, how can we make it taste better? Do we need more of this? Do we need less of that? Maybe we should pitch more yeast. Maybe we should, you know, keep it colder for longer, Wh- whatever it is. There's still decisions like that that are, that are being made. We're not just making the same stuff and going, oh, yeah, that will probably be all right. We do we do testing and quality control and everything and still do still do little tweaks every now and again. So. I mean, I don't find it so so soul-sucking, I guess, to be making the same stuff over and over because we do still have things that we can be creative about in a, in, in some capacity. Uh, but that said, uh, it is very nice to have our little pilot system. We've had that at the brewery for about a year now, and uh, we're all we're all having a bit of a go on it, being able to make some kind of beers that we want to uh, put on tap at our new venue. So that that came hand in hand with the new venue at the Queen Vic Market. So now the brewers are also being able to let out their very creative side in terms of <laughs> recipe development on the pilot kit. So I was I was very proud that my um, my Belgian strong ale made it to uh, the golds in the Indies recently. So I still do have a chance awards, to. Uh, I saw. It was it was so I was very proud of that and that that's also really nice to have that outlet for the creativity and I I got to say there's there's a lot of respect for the brewing manager Cade and also head brewer John for giving us the time to be able to work on that pilot kit because I think they can see that it it really does for those brewers that really do are passionate about the recipe development and the creativity we are able to give it a go now and I think it's nice to be able to to show people that we are we are brewers and we are creative and we don't want to make the same stuff all day every day and now that we have a venue to be able to do that and to be able to show people kind of the people behind the the beer that gets made it's it's kind of nice and quite um quite good for morale one of the uh, other things i really have to talk to you about and it's it's uh what you won the uh beer writing award for at the aibas uh several years ago it's the first uh female beer writer to win congratulations um but it's and it was also something that uh, you touched on in the sessionable podcast when we spoke to you 
was the you know the, the the challenge that the industry is confronting in moving away from its blokey nature um mm. you know to to be much more inclusive and you know that was one of the things you wished back uh, five years ago on the podcast was that it would continue to improve um what have you seen o- over your career in, in 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 the industry i've definitely seen an improvement uh, over the years which is wonderful to be able to say that i'm very happy i'm able to say that I see a lot more uh, women and, and non-binary people. I, I want to say the term not male identifying to be inclusive. And if I do slip into saying women, I hope it's understood that I that I mean it as a wider term. Um, but yeah, it's good to see that there's a lot more, not more people at the at the helm of breweries and in management roles and working in craft breweries, not just as brewers in the production side, but also on the bar side. I've definitely seen a lot more women come into the industry and be present in the industry. Um, and I think it's it's hard to say because I am only one person, so I can't say whether the problems are still there or not and the issues that I wrote about are still are still there. I'm sure everyone has their own story to tell in terms of that, and I definitely can't speak for everybody. But it is nice to see that. It, it I feel like it is turning a bit away from this blokey image. I feel like breweries, for the most part, are trying their best to be more inclusive, um, not just in terms of the people they hire, but also the people that they're wanting to drink their beer and the, and the messages that they're sending when they're marketing their beer. And I definitely think um, there's a lot more, yeah, a lot more females on staff as well and working in production and showing that it is a job for everybody. It's a job that everybody can do and still still majority men and still a ways to go, but I'm definitely happy to see that there has been an improvement as, as far as I can tell. And I think there's, I'm still a, still a member of Pink Boots. I think that organization has done some fantastic things over the past couple of years. Some of the scholarships and opportunities that have been available through that organization have been absolutely phenomenal and and congratulations for TIFF and all the previous presidents for that and I think that's also really helped um, to to bring the industry of fair ways forward to to bring us into a more you know progressive way of being. That's great to hear because again I I think you know being someone who's in their 50s and has seen the, 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 the progression you know it really seems to have accelerated, but that always happens as there are more women visible in an industry. There are more people who are going to feel comfortable in in, in an industry, and you know that's um, that doesn't happen overnight. You know, for example, it does take time for people and become uh, more visible. Because um, one one of the examples that is often held up is you know, when uh, a, a female beer drinker turns up at a bar and the assumption is that they're not a beer drinker, um, you know, the more beer drink female beer drinkers there are, the more experienced bar people are going to have of serving people who ask for beer. And uh, I, I was, because uh, I was minded of that, uh, you know, actually I'm regularly minded of that because I drink white wine and my partner drinks red. And yet if we order and somebody different brings the wine, I'm inev- inevitably given the red wine because the assumption is that well it's more masculine and the, the female drinks white and I sort of think well you know it, it, it is it sexism or, or, or experience and the more often that we can normalize the experience of women drinking beer the better for the whole industry absolutely as a, as a non-wine drinker I find it absolutely hilarious that the color of wine is somehow gendered <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, but, well, but, but it's not even. I, I think because uh, you know, red wines you know, were Shiraz based, which tended to be. But it's the same thing. If I order a salad and my partner orders steak, you know, 
I get the state yeah. because the bloke, you know, it's yeah, exactly. There's a whole whole cultural thing behind it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. I mean, um, I guess for me, it's uh, d- interesting because I'm 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 gay, so I've only ever had female partners. So it's it's never been a, a problem that that you know my boyfriend's been given the beer because I've never had one really. So <laughs> I can't say I've experienced that, but uh, it is quite nice to to go go somewhere and order a beer, and you know it's it's a group of friends and you know predominantly female friends, and we've ordered a whole round of beers. I mean, most of my friends are brewers or in the brewing industry, and it's kind of like I've never never experienced any kind of double take or any kind of issue. It's just been so so normal that if if you're at a brewery or a pub and there's a round of beers and everyone at the table is female it's like all right well no big deal it's just it's just how the industry and how the how the world is going that it's just absolutely normal or becoming yeah. normal nowadays as as far as i'm concerned i mean that's that's my personal experience i don't know if 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 other people feel differently towards that and i'm sure there are stories to the contrary but but for me i think it's definitely got to a point where i I don't see any any kind of double take or any issue like I had have seen in the past about it being presumed that I don't drink beer. Oh, that's good. again. I'm just still reflecting on you know quite apart from me being a 53 year old white man, our experience um, would never be the same because again, like I go out with my female partner, and so our experience is going to be very different uh, to to yours. Um, and we're going to see very, very different things. Which, as Sabrina um, has a, you know, makes a point of saying, that is the, you know, essence of why we need a diverse, you know, diverse businesses to bring in the the breadth of experience of uh, different people. Yeah, absolutely. And and going back to what you said before about you know, kind of having more visible females in the industry begets more visible females in the industry. And, and for me, that's absolutely true. And, and I, I think of an example of somewhere like Two Birds. I mean, that attracted me to the business. And I know that I'm not the only one that's been there and worked there and carried on and done my own thing afterwards. And from, from one business, you know, from, from two women that started that business, how many other people they would have inspired to go off and do something and increase the diversity in the beer world. I mean, it's just an, an exponential growth in that way. To mm. use a mathematics term. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that I'm just looking at the time. That actually rounds out the conversation. We we start on uh, maths and finish on maths and talk a little bit about brewing on the way. So uh, <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> I should ask. So you know. So what is next for you? You are currently the the, the, the shift lead brewer at Brick Lane uh, down in Dandenong. Um, you know what what is the plan uh you know great brewery under as you said john selton uh, you know an incredibly talented uh and precise artist of a brewer but what what's next for marie claire or or you know are we, are we doing what we normally do and just uh, <laughs> I, I i guess is it fair to say that you've um rolled the dice with your career so far Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I mean, I'm always I'm always looking towards what's next, and I've I have jumped around uh, quite a bit in the past couple of years from from when we last spoke, and however many five or six years ago. So I got to say, for now, I'm I'm quite happy where I am, and I plan to stick it out and stay stay a bit stable for a little while. Uh, but in the future, I think I would like to to continue on to the more technical side of things. I would love to be a technical brewer one day. Uh, you know, potentially some kind of consultant, but I still have a lot more to learn before I get there. And and Brick Lane is a great place for me to learn that in in terms of the size. It's it's big enough to to be able to you know see modern equipment, but small enough that I can 
uh, tapped John on the shoulder and asked him a question. So it's kind of the perfect size for me to be learning everything I want to learn. So stick around there for a bit, but I definitely have have aspirations to, to go far more on the technical side and the, the process-driven side uh, in the next couple of years. But, yeah, for now, very happy where I am and hopefully can continue bringing Brick Lane even more success. Wonderful. Well, congratulations, and uh, thank you very much for this conversation about beer. Likewise. Thank you so much. It was great to speak with you. And that was MC Jarrett. If you work in the Australian brewing industry and are listening to this, you're not alone. Our listener feedback is that Radio Brews News is where the brewing industry and decision makers turn for their insight and analysis. So it's the perfect place for you to reach them with your message as well. Now more than ever, you should be investing your marketing spend in media that gets results and is heard. And just ask the businesses such as Rallings and Bluestone Yeast about the reach and impact of our podcast advertising. If you'd like to find out more, shoot through an email to sam at brewsnews.com.au to find out how you can advertise. We'll be back again on Friday with Brews News Week with all of the insight and analysis of the last seven days of beer industry news. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening.